just uh, by way of uh, introduction, um, first came to Daiba Zendo in uh, 1990. And uh, so that was the uh, Junpo uh, era. Uh, Itaroshi was there. Um, Renji, uh, Bob, Chuya, Hoan. And um, And uh, it's a sheen, I remember uh, Shinge Roshi, but having much more hair at that time. And, uh, and but always quite lovely and kind. So, um, so there is some long-term association and appreciation and, you know, uh, in a way, returning home, returning to the fold with, uh, you know, some of the residents and the people from DBZ, you know, Julio being so welcoming, Kimpu, uh, so many people, um, Karen. And uh, so uh, I've been in recovery for uh, 33 years from addiction. And, um, and this has been basically a natural Buddha field. Uh, as I say, in the field of addictions, you won't run out of anybody suffering for sure. Um, there's always one more person. And uh, when I became ordained, um, in 2015, um, I honestly thought that uh, I would be like any other uh, priest or monk that uh, you do a sashim, you do, you know, marriages, burials, things like this. Um, but uh, as I recall, uh, Itaroshi once saying, and it, though he said it many times, uh, give yourself to the Dharma and the Dharma will give itself to you. And, um, and boy, did it ever. Um, you know, I could tell, um, a hundred thousand stories, especially about uh, this immersion practice that I use today. And I actually um, spent 10 days uh, while uh, as a resident, uh, Shinge Roshi, uh, one of the things that she was most gracious about was uh, there was this 10-day uh, conference on the West Coast uh, where it was uh, 70 teachers of African-American descent. Um, and, and Buddhist scholars um, and uh, out at Spirit Rock Meditation. And um, it was a really powerful practice and an opportunity to share, uh, you know, a lot of times it's very easy to talk about uh, the challenges, the problems, uh, the horrific experiences, but uh, I have to be honest, I haven't heard a lot of uh, solutions. and. Uh, 12-step approach is a, is a natural uh, model for me. So as we get started, because there's going to be plenty of time to answer questions at the end, I, I want to uh, set some ground rules to this. One is, uh, I don't, I invite you not to apologize for your life experience. And I invite you not to have to apologize for the culture that we live in and the culture of whiteness. Um, I invite uh, us to uh, not tiptoe around and have to say the right, perfect thing um, so that we can, you know, put the ball across the plate. Um, it's okay, you know, I always say uh, with people, especially with this, because it can be a little difficult or disorienting, that I offer uh, Dharma accident forgiveness insurance regarding race. You know, it, it makes it a lot easier uh, that way. And, um, and a lot of times we're doing things and we're not aware of it uh, or, or the implications. So I, I will give you a couple of funny stories. Um, once, uh, uh, when I was uh, uh, an omnivore, um, I was going through uh, a Hardee's drive-through, and when I was going through the drive-through, 
when I got to the window uh, to pick up the order, the, the young woman said, uh, oh my gosh, you have the most beautiful eyes ever. Um, are those contacts? And my response was, I always wear contacts with my glasses. Um, she didn't seem to appreciate that at the time. So, so then, uh, but oddly, you know, on the East Coast being who we are, we have to push further. <laughs> and so the question um, became, what race do you consider yourself? And I said, well, obviously human. And uh, she just looked at me bewildered and uh, didn't know uh, what to do with that. Um, and I just accepted the food and just left, you know. So uh, that, and that's the example of cultural bias and othering, you know, uh, that can happen. And um, it's also all these things where people, um, like working in the field of addictions when I was young in my career, you know, uh, talking to some referral sources. And uh, they came to visit the facility because I was uh, the uh, director of uh, a 40-bed uh, adolescent inpatient treatment facility uh, on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, where I happen to be right now posted up uh, because of uh, COVID-19. and. Um, there were two people, there was uh, a woman and a man, but the woman, when she met me, she said, you're black, you, but you sounded white on the phone. And uh, my response was, um, Catholic school works well, you know, on, on uh, the linguistics and enunciations. And, um, you know, so it's it's a lot of that. And so there's these glancing blows and then, but as the POC, a person of color, um, it's a lot of energy to absorb. It's a lot of, you know, we talk about in Buddhism, greed, uh, anger, and delusion, you know, born of our body, mouth, and thought, you know, so, uh, but people don't have enough awareness or calibration to know, to confess, <laughs> or try to purify it all, you know, go through the process. And, um, and so there's harm. And so the, uh, the nature of the practice in my experience over the years is pretty simple. Do everything that you can not to turn things into what they're not. But when they are, um, find a way to navigate through them. So uh, in this first step that I use for cultural bias, it's that we admitted that we were powerless or are powerless over our conditioning, circumstances, uh, the nature of our society, the history of our society. And, um, and when we lack clarity with uh, the nature, the culture, the, you know, like it or not, uh, it, it's, it's based around a certain ethnic group. Um, harm, we can create a lot of unmanageability for ourselves and other people uh, without knowing it. One of the examples that I could actually use uh, that's very pertinent to everyone in the Zen study society is um, really uh, Nyogen Senzaki. Being here, foreign soil, having the appearance of being different, sounding different perhaps. And then something happens in, in the overall structure of being and then he and many others are placed in internment camps, not based on the content of the character, but on the quality, the color, and nature of the skin, and objectified. And strikingly, like when I read his works, 
what's powerful is how he himself dealt with uh, cultural bias, racism, and otherism, and how he used the practice to, um, there used to be a calligraphy a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, at DBZ, when I was much younger, that said, purify your heart, purify your presence. And somehow he used the practice in his way to do that. And in Seattle, uh, there's, um, it's called the Panama Hotel. It's down in what's called the ID uh, or the International, International District. And in the International District, you can go down there and their belongings, their bags, their luggage, their things are literally still there. It's a glass floor and you can look down and you can see the remnants of our conditioning, our cultural bias, our racism, and our otherism in that building. It all hurts until it doesn't. Very much like uh, Mason's cat being held up, not really feeling like you belong to any hall. And how do we respond to our circumstances? It's difficult. So, um, this unmanageability that we uh, can create, the way to perhaps deal with it, you know, because there is this one expression uh, that's kind of intriguing. Uh, and, and I heard it in uh, some radical Dharma workshops. And it was like kind of like a mantra. And the mantra was, and by the way, and this is like a small vignette, which is um, when I went to uh, my first Radical Dharma workshop, which was in Seattle, uh, I was fascinated by uh, Kyoto Sensei because I had never uh, in my experience um, met um, in a, a black person or a person of African-American descent who wasn't ordained until that time my entire life. Um, and that's basically 30 years of Zen practice. I had never met a black ordained person, especially in the Rinzai tradition. I had seen someone video, um, but never met one or been in the room with one. And, uh, and perhaps the closest, you know, um, was just some videos Har Harada Roshi, uh, one, one of his, uh, I believe, Dharma heirs is a POC, but I've never met him. So, uh, so it's striking to be in this experience, you know, the othering and what can happen and the unmanageability that we can create. Um, in a particular uh, Zen temple that I was at, and this is just a POC thing. Uh, I was jiki-jitsu and, um, and my tendency was like after um, going out of the Zendo, I would be like at the side of the door and it was the morning sit, so I would just greet people in the morning or just you know invite them to have a good day, you know, to acknowledge people because one of the things uh, that's really important um, is uh, in doing our work, you know, anti-racist work. You know, you're either a racist or an anti-racist, but there's no such thing as uh, Ibram Kendi says as a not racist. It, uh, it, it's kind of like I, I sometimes say in recovery. You're either progressing in your recovery or regressing, but to my knowledge, there's no such thing as aggressing. 
you know, this disease of addiction or the disease of diabetes or any chronic illness it, it, uh, does not exist in a, in a neutral state. It's, it's moving one way or the other. So uh, these, uh, what I call them young timers in practice, you know, they were basically there for the first set. So they were doing what young timers do, which was moving a lot and wiggling and they, you know, they were all over the place. And um, in, at the break in the sit, I gave an instruction to, you know, I invited them, you know, let them know that they could use a chair. But once the sit concluded and I was outside, one of the, the people ran after the, these three young women and said, do you speak English? And I was like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding? And, and intersected and had to go in and check with these people and talk with them because, um, share with them because, uh, to make sure that they were okay. Because um, the reason why a lot of times, or what gets a, a person of color into a zendo over someone sometimes that is white, though the same circumstances can apply, uh, it's almost an act of God to get uh, a POC, a black person into a zendo because it goes so against the culture, uh, African-American culture, uh, Christian church and things like that. It's, it's almost a heretical act. So when, uh, so when uh, a POC gets there, it's important to do something which I learned from somebody else actually in uh, Seattle, uh, this doctor, uh, Dr. Kim Holland, who was actually shot in the chest by a racist in Seattle as she was shot during a protest when she was young. And she said, Seho, always make sure that you give black people the nod. You don't have to talk to them, but just give them the nod and just let them know that they're seen. And so this comes into the step two of this process that uh, with the cultural bias, racism, otherism, that we can use ahimsa, non-harming, uh, the Eightfold Path, skillful means to potentially restore our interactions to soundness of mind, heart, some semblance of sanity. So acknowledging people. So in relationally, what I could say is that about a year or so ago, um, there was the AZTA um, goings on at Diabasotsuzendo, uh, Kongoji. And during that time, they were, uh, I don't recall the exact name of the film, but it was about end of life. And um, I was coming out of Ohio, Columbus, and managed to talk to Julio. Julio did his normal magic thing, and I was able to be there. And while I was there, and I was in the back of the room, and really didn't know hardly anyone, uh, and um, was in the back of the room. And uh, during a brief intermission or as something was starting, I can't remember how it actually went, but Shinge Roshi was kind enough to uh, invite me to sit next to her and acknowledge my presence with others. And that is anti-racist work. Perhaps whether she realized it or not, it was just kind of in her way, giving me the nod so that in a certain way, I could relax a little bit and have a sense of, it's okay for me to be here because most of the time, especially in densely uh, white spaces, as we call it, uh, persons of color 
really have and can have uh, an extraordinarily extraordinary sense of discomfort, um, especially when they don't know people. Um, for me, you know, I'm just kind of like, I, you know, more Sherpa than monk. So wherever you're at, you just deal with it, and you know, maybe you'll get dinner later. We'll see. But these acts that can be skillful of acknowledgement of kindness rather than hardness, you know, uh, one of the things that recently came up, you know, uh, during the past week, George Floyd, the transcript was released from the body cam of the officers. And it's striking. The uh, the cultural bias, the insanity that was occurring at the time. Uh, no one ever really got to the bottom of whether or not he actually had a, a counterfeit $20, not by the way. But um, when the police arrived, he was sitting in his vehicle and he started at the very first sentence was, I'm sorry, sorry, officer. And then, so what the, uh, one of the officers said was is, put your effing hands on the wheel and don't effing move. So instantaneously, it's this power domination. And through what was striking in the entire encounter, even when uh, for eight minutes and I believe 46 seconds, that the officer had his knee on his neck. There were actually, when you got the full view from the other side of the street, there were three other police officers on his body. He said, please, 22 times. He never cussed once on the, on the, on the transcript. He had no cussing. He wasn't, he was saying, I'm sorry, I apologize. Can you please uh, get me some water, please? I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And doing everything he can to survive the moment because of cultural bias, racism, a, a big black body. <clears throat> that is there to be dominated by the white police culture or police culture in general. And he was crying out for his mother and he was, and there was the realization cause it does happen when even like Zen masters Zen teachers will say, okay, it's about to happen. Cause I, I feel it, I can see it, here it comes. And they give their last words. And so, and his last words were, please tell my children I love them. I'm sorry. There's an intersection between global warming, COVID-19, and this current sickness that we have not attended to of cultural bias, racism, otherism, including misogyny, uh, acts against the LGBTQ community. <clears throat> and what are our policies in our heart, in our mind, in our temple? Um, are we being equitable? Are we striving towards equality? You know, I can, it's very obvious in uh, affirming faith in mind. The great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose based on color. And when we cast those differences aside and see people as true human beings, the way is clear 
and undisguised. And as Hakun Yasutani Roshi once said, our great mistake is, is that I am over here, you are over there. The third step is simple. That we take massive action to commit to the Eightfold Path. You know, uh, most people do the Eightfold Path from start to finish, which is uh, clear understanding, clear intention, clear speech, clear action. But the way I've learned to practice it over the years is in reverse. So I begin with concentration, mindfulness, effort, codified by uh, ethical conduct, and then sincere livelihood, sincere communication, sincere action, sincere intention, which all of those things will culminate into sincere and clear understanding that um, essentially what His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, we are all the same human being. And if we're the same human being, we're treating people with not so much fairness, but treating people as people. You know, it says at the beginning of the driveway at Diabas of Susendo, reverence and awe. We can drive with reverence and awe, not just up a driveway, but in each moment of our life. And if we commit to these bodhisattva principles, however innumerable all beings are, we vow, we promise to the best of our ability to care for them all. That for me has been a powerful meditation practice to treat people and their feelings to the best of my ability not perfectly because i've never met a happy perfectionist but with dignity and grace reverence and awe and when i'm doing those things and i'm reflecting into those things and taking my inventory on those things things tend to go mm, like two people bowing together no distance no gap no space no time And so I guess we have 30 minutes, if uh, that's okay with uh, Shinge Roshi. Is that accurate? And like I said, accident forgiveness insurance, if you have any questions like about like the whole nature or any comments or statements or anything about that, you know, there's no perfect statement. There's no Zen, you know, you know, it's just, we are, uh, all the same human being, so. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Seho. You know, it was wonderful conclusion. I was brought there to Daibasatsu Zendo at the bottom of the road, reverence and awe and what a beautiful way to condense everything that we need to be aware of and that you spoke of so beautifully. Hello. I just want to express my deepest gratitude to you, Shingiroshi, for inviting Seho here today. I don't know Seho much, but I 
saw him a couple of times at uh, Daibusatsu and what I was, I actually didn't know his race. Uh, that was not the first thing that came to my mind. Um, but what came to my mind was the energy of loving kindness that he was exuding. So, um, and that's the impression I had of him. But today I was just struck by the prajna and the wisdom that you showed. I just think that you leaving Daibasatsu with a big loss. And as you were speaking today, my heart was breaking in sorrow, but also opening in joy because you speak so wisely and so clearly, seeing things as they are but also providing the solutions that each one can take. And so my question to you today is, you know, this particular space is also a primarily white space. And in my personal opinion, that uh, diversity would be something that could really heal and grow the Sangha in immeasurable ways. Um, in ways that we cannot even begin to understand the value of, for all parties concerned, without any reference to other or what have you. So, I mean, that's my personal wish and dream for this Sangha anyways. How would you suggest or recommend that such an action be undertaken? If it can, in fact, be undertaken. Um, mm. So uh, there's always inner Jedi. What, so there's, there's three things I could say quickly. Um, one is when I came back from, from uh, California, um, one of the things uh, in coming back, I had a, a meeting with uh, Shinge Roshi and cause it was my intention to, to be there. Uh, had so much that I was struck by out there and um, felt so moved to, I didn't know what was going to happen, um, but I felt like I needed to be somehow outside of uh, the DBZ setting to kind of digest and process what was going on because it's, it's sometimes like almost like a monk who goes like to a hermitage or a hut you know, because if you're just in the regular, you know, sangha, you, you, <laughs> uh, in the, in the process of, you know, going through all this stuff, uh, nobody likes to see how sausage gets made, you know, as I, as I like to say, so you don't want to, you don't want people around. So I formally asked Shinge Roshi for a temporary, uh, leave because I am her student, so that that's not changing. And um, and at this point, there's like kind of, oddly because of COVID nineteen, there is this kind of circular return path. Um, and I'm about to return to the West Coast for about three weeks, and then what I'm actually looking to is basically to more formally uh, schedule up and, and return uh, to that fold. The second thing is I'm going to do something you're not supposed to do, but um, uh, being a POC, I guess I'm a rule breaker. And so one of the, th the, the conversations that I had, um, it would occur in Doksan with, uh, Shinge Roshi. And it was, um, we were talking about koans and uh, what actually happened at the time, uh, when I was at Choboji and I essentially, uh, for a period of time quit my koan practice. And it was at the time when Michael Brown was shot and I couldn't synchronize my koan practice with what was going on at the time. And, and so some things occurred for me and, um, one of the things just about Osho, you know, becoming, I, I was like, I, you know, this is going to sound brutal, but um, I didn't want to be validated by a white person and, and, and take the, the, the gold case in that way. It, was, it just, it didn't make sense. Um, 
What's, and what I've learned in recovery is at one point you can use a hammer, but the, at some point you got to drop the hammer and you have to pick up something more elegant. Uh, and, and, and the same is in training. And my, my feeling is with Shingo Roshi, I don't know what it'll be. I, I'm not, I don't care about the case. I care about the reality of, of the practice and the training. And when uh, we were talking in Doksan, I told her what my real koan is which is the koan of Eric Garner being on a corner and meeting the system, the structural violence, and I can't breathe, and the system not like letting go of him, and I needed to be able to breathe. And in that moment, there was the perfect, for me, for me, I can't say for anyone else, um, there is no perfect teacher. Um, Everybody burps, everybody has to go to the bathroom, everybody drives badly once in a while. But in that moment, uh, Shinge Hiroshi's authentic response um, gave me a sense of resonance where I finally said, they have me. And uh, the other thing is too, one of the, well, I don't know if it'll go there, but the third, the, the last thing is, what I'm hoping is, is that um, because of some things going on in the wider uh, African-American community, um, one of the things that, that I've, I've talked to some people about, such as Ruth King, um, uh, Zenju Earthland Manuel, is perhaps maybe someday, if uh, it works with uh, Shinge Roshi and the board, that maybe because um, that house, you know, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, maybe that could be a place of like some workshops and some trainings and as well as the, the immersions that I do because the, the immersions uh, are about three or five days long. And it's a lot to take in and process and work with. So I'm hoping, I don't know what it'll be. You know, uh, I can have hopes, but uh as my sponsor in recovery says, it's okay to make plans, but just don't plan the results. You're, you're happier that way. Thank you. May I continue the conversation a little bit, please? Hey. Thank you. Say, Hosan, it was so inspiring to hear your talk and I'm very grateful for it. And I thought I would continue some of the conversation Jifu uh, brought up. I was really grateful for so much of what you said as a person who has um, mixed heritage, a person who is half white and half Latino and usually as racialized as white and the way that we kind of in those positions of ambiguity negotiate different communities is pretty complex. And Jifu, one of the questions you've actually, I think, asked this beautifully another time about how do we seek to make our community more welcoming to people of color. And for me, I've been thinking about this question a lot because I ask, is there a certain assumption that um, integration should look like a certain um, a certain action, and where does that come from? And I guess what I mean by that is uh, going to college where I went to a majority white institution, people of color would oftentimes come together in different groups to give each other support and recognize that the majority oftentimes looks at diversification as the answer, but oftentimes people of color need to have communities of ourselves as well. And so one of the toughest questions I think is, is there a white bias in the way we, in the way that we imagine a kind of fully integrated um, community? Are there ways to open up spaces so that people of color feel comfortable? And I, I, I apologize, Sehosan, for not 
posing this as a question to you. It's more that uh, you've made me feel a kind of strength in simply seeing another person of color not have to adopt mainstream language in order to practice. And so I think for me, one of the, the thoughts of anti-racist practice is constantly just like practice. It is always practice. You can't get to a state and expect racism to disappear because racism is a kind of attachment. That's, I, I'll, I'll sign off there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so in my experience, um, one, there's a, the way I sometimes put it is you can do everything so-called right, and it's still not going to turn out the way that, that we would hope. So one of the things is, uh, especially in many cultures like Latina X culture, in um, black culture, is uh, there's a certain uh, inherent solidarity uh, in indigenous people, by the way, too, uh, in, in, in the church or their tribal practice uh, that uh, coming in into a, uh, going outside of that space and like say into uh, Zen Buddhist culture is anathema. It, it, it's it's considered weird, strange, you know. And uh, and I'll say that was a common theme with those uh, so many other uh, scholars and teachers is uh, that that alone. So. The, the other aspect is um, it's not that I would say doing things artificially, but just being natural. Like um, uh, some people are doing active work on it. I know people in the Sangha at DBZ who are, I mean, they've got books, you know, and, and we converse about books, um, a, a couple of people. And then there are, are some people who I don't know if they're actively working on on it or not, but um, the tenor and the tone, like from my, my personal experience at DBZ versus other Sangha is, uh, it, oddly it was very similar to, to hanging out with um, Harada Roshi's Sangha uh, in Seattle and some others where um, it was extraordinarily kind open-hearted, generous. Um, if you needed to say something, there, was, there wasn't a barrier like it's DBC when we have uh, our Sangha meetings. No one is expected to edit themselves. You know, it's okay to be who you are and say what needs uh, to be said, you know, I, I recall strikingly, you know, and this is the importance of, of direct communication, you know, in uh, Seppo's book, um, Three Bowls, there's a bazillion teachings in there. It's not just about the food, it's about the teaching. And uh, this one thing that I, I've taken to heart from Three Bowls is where, uh, I'm not sure who's saying it might be Ed or it might be him sharing a story from somebody else. They said Zen is essentially three things, clear, decisive, and direct. And instead of just using Psychic Friends Network um, to see where, you know, hope where people are and then kind of act um, projectingly, it's to have these clear and direct conversations. And so uh, a moment of intimacy it was when uh, at Roshi's funeral, um, there were the residents at the time who, I mean, just coming off a, a, a crazy, like, 40-person, you know, retreat or, or something, and um, Shinya Roshi was on site, and I, and I was on the side, like, uh, of the Tenzo, the dining hall, and they were outside of the Zendo on the deck, and I was, like, kind of sitting there on the floor just watching, and what was weird is in Itaroshi's time, that wouldn't have ever happened, you know, where 
and it was an extraordinary period of time. Like she wasn't driving an agenda, you know, the, 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 the heart of it was, I heard, she was creating space for people to simply have a conversation and any concerns that you had in this particular activity or this event, it was okay. And if you couldn't sync up with it, it was okay. And wherever you were, but you were invited to authentically be yourself without uh, what I would call spiritually bypassing, oh, well, this is Zen world and we must be, the Dharma light hits our soul and we're gonna just be cool and no matter what happens, I can just take the hit. And she was saying, no, we're human beings. If this, in this moment is outside of your wheelhouse, okay and i still care about you and don't have to reject you or think less of you that uh so so that said you know these artificial things i honestly i mean even me being here today and in, in, in giving this dharma talk that you know it's not what we can do down the road it's how we are and what we're doing um and and how we're we're interacting with people. And honestly, I personally believe that if we, because it's my experience, that if we really, really, really give ourselves to the 10 precepts, to our vows, and use that as our, as our compass to navigate the present moment experience, we'll do okay. Thank you. Hi, say hello. This is Kushu. I don't know if you can see me. We don't really know each other or maybe don't know each other at all, but uh, so many important things in your talk from start to finish. Uh, bear with me for a second. A lot of times I hear, and I've said it myself, people say, oh, it resonated. But I'm going to list a couple concrete things starting from the top. Two perfect round eggs, cheeks, t-shirt, same teacher. You mentioned Ohio Columbus. I grew up in inner city in Cleveland and have a distinct memory from five years old in 1967 of jeeps and tanks going down the street in front of my Catholic school, Catholic school. So many things the same. I was just, I was like, okay, yes, of course, sameness, 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 but you're black, I'm white, different. Sameness and difference. Recognizing both. Neither is the same as oneness, is it? So I have a request. Can you call me sometime? And we can talk. Hey. One small comment uh, based on experience is, uh, I don't know if it's still there in the current Sutra book, but um, there was this like wide version of the Sutra book, like back in the day when I was there. And there was a striking line that has, has always rested well with me. And it was from the Lankavatara Sutra, which is, things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. Though the skin, the history, the, the details of who we are uh, are different. Uh, if I'm the correct blood type, I can share my blood with you irregardless of anything that appears remotely or whatever. Um, and so thank God and the Dharma for blood banks, you know, for recognizing that reality. So, um, so in that sense, uh, we're all the same human being. Thank you. So I will definitely call and we'll get, I'll get your number. Okay. It's It's Jikan. How are you? Oh, great. Tenzo. 
Um, it's so good to see you and to hear from you, uh, your powerful talk. Um, I was sorry that I wasn't able to say goodbye to you the next time I went to DBZ. You weren't there and I was like looking for you <laughs> and I said you were gone. Um, but Seho, before we met, we spoke on the phone, we emailed a lot because I was uh, Ted Tenzo and we were, Juyo was gone and you were ordering uh, food for me. So we had to have a lot of conversation. And when I did meet you, I have to say, I did notice you were a person of color. You know, it's not like I didn't see color, I saw your color, but what I didn't see was your experience might be different, um, you know, in, in the Sangha, in the world. Uh, I just assume, and I do this with my friends, I live in a diverse community in Maplewood, New Jersey, and it's an affluent community. And um, my African-American friends, I often don't, you know, I just see their, their uh, privilege and their affluence and don't understand that they may have a different experience than me. So what I'm saying is that I think uh, I look at race in two ways. There is, there are the people out there that are, you know, uh, that, that may not have as much privilege that are getting um, abused. And then there's people of color that I feel are, you know, uh, somewhat privileged and are not, and, and I believe that, I know, I don't believe I know, um, that that's my misconception, that I'm compartmentalizing race within, uh, you know, economic uh, uh, standards and, and um, you know, just by you coming here today and talking, uh, reinforced that stereotype, uh, not reinforced it, but uh, made me look at that uh, stereotype that I reinforced. So, but it's, it's really good to see you. And I just wanted to say hi, <laughs> and I hope to see you soon. Ditto, ditto. So, Hi there, this is Jean Nin. Uh, okay, I don't see me yet, so, but you hear me, so, all right. So uh, I uh, very much appreciated uh, your, your nod, about the nod. Um, you, you know, uh, I always, I'm always looking, what, whatever one's circumstances are, whether you're, you're on front line of change or as I am, in, someone in a backwater, uh, the nod is extremely important. And uh, I try to practice that myself. And it, as you say yourself, you don't need to speak, just you're ex truly you know, recognizing someone who is seen as an other. And through this nod, they know that they're seen. So thank you for, for reinforcing that also. Thank you very much. Hi, can I speak? Thank you for your speak, uh, talk. Uh, I have a, this kind of question. The, as a POC, the, I work like POC Sang as well, yet the term, the word POC usually used interchangeably as black. And, you know, when I consider myself a POC, sometimes I'm told I am not. But when I go to POC group, that I am not. So, the what? What do you suggest, or what do you what do you take of it? That I don't know if you uh, recognize, but even in people color community, there is sort of like the racial hierarchy, i.e., visibility. So, the what do you suggest to? I, I I don't know what. Just quick question. The simple question is: What what is your take of that? 
So, uh, so two things. One is I invite, um, I appreciate your question. Um, I invite uh, reading a book. It's called uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist um, by Ibram Kendi. And one of the things he really goes into, see, there's a general theory or thought process in black culture is that um, POCs can't be racist because you're not, you're not the dominant, um, you're not in the majority. And so whoever is in the majority essentially uh, gets to dictate the rules of the game. Uh, that, that's the Reader's Digest shortcut into it. But, um, but what uh, Kendi says in, in, in his book, and it's true, you know, experientially, this isn't theoretically, is that based on your, your color uh, gradation determines uh, hierarchy. And, and that's 100% true. You know, my, my given name, my birth name is Jay. And so um, it, it's, it's not uh, more traditional um, like Ibram. And so um, the, the truth is I'm more likely to get a job than, than somebody else based on cultural bias. That's true. And also in uh, POC culture, um, similar to you, I'm not considered a real black person. Uh, my father is uh, white. And so um, very white now that he's deceased. But um, so, uh, so one, one of the, like one night I went into this 12-step uh, meeting and, um, and I was talking about racism. You know, because we have a basic ethos that is anti-racist. And I said, and to, I said, normally the light is pointing at white people, but I'm saying to, to the black people here, I know that behind my back that you call me high yellow, you know, uh, that I am somehow more privileged than you are because I, I talk a certain way that, uh, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And, um, and I've experienced racism and, and perpetrated it. And uh, like in terms of uh, racism, I'm considered what's called an, an assimilationist, which is um, a lot of my ethos was based on how I was raised about college education, reading, and things like that. And neither white or black. I have friends who they, it's a, it's a badge of honor that they haven't read a book since high school. You know, <laughs> and um, but uh, so what I had to do was is I did a lot of listening, and what I what I realized is is people who were uh, of darker complexion, the darker the, the skin tone. One of the things that I recognized is the greater the pressure and in, um, stress and and things like that, and and I didn't have the same depth or level of stress uh, that they did because the, the depth of the oppression was not the same. And so that's what generates that. And that's why I, you know, like kind of like what I said at the beginning, I offer accident uh, forgiveness insurance. I do a lot of practice with this. I work with a lot of people and I'm, I'm doing a lot of different immersions, have like some online workshops, kind of, you know, different things. So this is always the narrative and the conversation and I'm always, uh, kind of like in my Zen practice, pushing it, you know, to, to see where we can go so that instead of being stuck in the problem, we can get into some version of what does a solution look like for us where I can, you know, I know this may sound odd to throw it out at this time, but is uh, my physical, mental, emotional, spiritual stability is not dependent on whether or not somebody is racist or not. The only thing I really care about, like I posted something the other day, if you're going to be racist, I don't really care one way or the other about what's going on in your head. What I actually care about is what are the policies or the behaviors that we're enacting? You know, um, that's what um, is important is how we are, but it's, it's a meditation practice. I hope that answers your question. Was that helpful at all? Thank you. And we're basically, I don't want to run over time because we're basically at the end. I, again, I appreciate Shinge Roshi and everybody, especially uh, people from DBZ, Scott, 
Kimpu, just everybody there, uh, just so much love and appreciation, gratitude. Dokoro uh, Osho and Chifu and just everybody. So thank you. Um, and, I, and I look forward to my uh, return uh, to living at DBZ and exploring this practice as one great sangha. <laughs>